welcome to Iris for Sunday, February 18th, 2024. My name is Trevor, and I'll be reading you the Sioux City Journal for today. Let's take a look at the five-day forecast to see what Mother Nature has in store for us, and then we will read the stories of local and regional interest to the Sioux City metro area. For the Siouxland's five-day forecast, today it'll be mostly sunny and milder, with winds west-northwest 6 to 12 miles per hour and a high of 44. Tonight it'll be patchy clouds with winds south-southeast 7 to 14 miles per hour and a low of 23 degrees. Monday, mild with partial sunshine winds. West, 8 to 16 miles per hour, high of 47, low of 23. Tuesday, mostly sunny and milder. Winds south-southeast, 7 to 14 miles per hour, high of 57, to low of 31. Wednesday, mostly sunny and mild. Winds west-southwest, 4 to 8 miles per hour, high of 57, low of 33. Thursday, breezy in the afternoon. Winds north-northeast, 10 to 20 miles per hour, high of 52, and a low of 20. So, the joys of... Winter in the Midwest, those big temperature swings from the sunny days to the cold nights. All right, let's look at the front page of Sunday's Sioux City Journal, where we look to Iowa High School State Wrestling, the championship round. Headline, Lewis, Ruse crowned as champs. Subheadline, both capped off undefeated seasons with state titles from Des Moines. After winning state titles at the IHSAA State Individual Wrestling Tournament, Jesse Lewis and Jarrett Roos had their minds go in different directions. Both won their respective weight classes on Saturday at the final day of the tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Lewis, a junior at West Sioux High School who won the 126-pound weight class in Class 1A, couldn't wait to get going on an effort to repeat. Quote, I'm ready to get back to work and get started on the next big thing, Lewis said. Ruse, a senior Class 2A 190-pound champ for the Sheldon South O'Brien wrestling team, couldn't help but to think of the past. Both, however, finished this campaign undefeated. Due to shoulder and knee injuries, one of which was suffered at state last season, Ruse wasn't able to wrestle until the holiday break this season. Quote, it's still setting in, Ruse said. I just feel so good right now. I don't know what to say. I went out there and got the job done. Quote, I knew my opponent was good and that I couldn't stick to my normal game plan or he'd try to stick me. So I changed it up a little and stayed a little lower and was a little less offensive. He also couldn't help but to thank his older brother, Jake, who, who passed away in early November of 2015. Jake's presence was felt from the start of the tournament. When the Sheldon South O'Brien head coach, Corey Roos, Jared's father, Went to get a suit to wear for the title match. He found something in the jacket pocket from the last time he wore that suit. Quote, the last time he wore that suit was at my brother's funeral, Ruse said. He thought he had it cleaned out, but he put it on and found the bulletin from the funeral in the inside pocket. Ruse beat North Polk senior Ben Bryant in the championship match by a 4-2 decision. Quote, I told my dad before we went out there that I was feeling the best I have all tournament, Ruse said. Quote, but this is... About the worst I felt. My head wasn't in the right place. I just didn't want to let anyone down. Cool. But we took finding the bulletin as a sign, and that helped me put me in the right position. An early takedown scored Roos the lead. Then he added a point to go up 3-0 with an escape early in the second frame. Lewis, who won a 106-pound Class A state title in Nebraska as a freshman at Norfolk High School, will stay active wrestling on the club circuit, but his mind is already preparing for a shot at another state title. 
He beat junior Brock Morris of Cascade by 14-3, major decision in the title round. Lewis scored two early takedowns to take a 4-0 lead before Morris cut in half with two escapes, was only able to score one more point on an escape while Lewis rattled off 10 more points on a variety of moves and scores. I've put in so much work to get to this moment, Lewis said. It feels good to know that it paid off. As soon as I walked out on the mat, I was really confident that I would walk off a champion. West Sioux has been the best family I've had in my life. Everyone there pushes me to be at my best every single day. They really helped me in leading up to this moment. Three more area wrestlers qualified for the title bout, and we'll head back to Siouxland as state runners-up. Westline sophomore Ryan Fanson fell to Eddieville Blake, Blakeburg Fremont freshman Gage Spurgeon in the 2A 120-pound championship by a 6-0 decision. In Class 1A 120 pounds, Akron Westfield senior Kale Morrow lost by 5-1 decision to junior Rowdy Neighbor of Alburnett by a 5-1 decision. Sergeant Bluff Luton 157-pound junior Bo Kodem was defeated by Osage senior Tucker Stangel, who beat Bo's older brother, Ty, for a state title last season. To start the day during placement matches, Kodem's teammate, junior Xavier Ellington, was a dramatic match that ended 2-2 in the ultimate tiebreaker session after three regulation periods and sudden victory weren't enough. Ellington led 2-1 late was the match after a stalling call gave Ben Community's Brendan Haying a point, a point to tie. But Ellington persevered. Quote, it was rough, Ellington said. It's four days of wrestling, your body wears down, and it really becomes about mental toughness. Right when we got to overtime, I dropped down to a leg because there has to be two stalemate calls to give up the stalling point. I tried to stay a little active to avoid giving up the point. I didn't really plan on losing when I did, but we did what we had to do to battle back for third. Other place winners in Class 2A included Sergeant Bluff Loon's Ethan Skogland, Central Lion George Little Rock's Regan Hashi, Sergeant Bluff Loon's Jace Curry, Boyden Hole Rock Valley's Brock Mulder, Bishop Helan's Jackson Kinnitz, and Sioux Center's Reed Holshoff. In 1A, Akron Westfield's Jaden Frex was 4th at 132, East Sac County 144-pounder Charlie Vate, Hinton 190-pounder Jacob Bishop, and Sibley O'Shaden heavyweight Michael Block all finished in 7th and 8th place finishers, included Sioux Central 126-pounder Cabin Morrow, Hinton 165-pounder Jackson Conkle, and Westwood heavyweight Tyler Solzberger. So that's the boys wrestling at state, and congrats to the winners. All right, let's now return back to the front page of the Sunday Sioux City Journal, where we look to the warming shelter and funding, or lack thereof, uh, and the question of that uh, by the city. Headline, Possible Shelter Contribution Sparks Debate. During a day-long operating budget study session Saturday, Sioux City Mayor Bob Scott said he's not supportive of allocating $50,000 in taxpayer money to the warming shelter, noting that historically, housing the homeless has not been a city function. Quote, I'm telling you, when you open this up this Pandora's box, there's a whole lot of agencies that are going to be here asking why they never had that opportunity, Scott said. Quote, how do we pick winners and losers? I don't see this as a city function I never have. 
In the old days, we had the county home. That's a county function to provide the service. The county's not putting any money in this. At the city council's January 22nd meeting, Shayla Moore, the warming shelter's executive director, asked the council to allocate funding to the only emergency shelter in the city in the next budget year, which begins July 1st. She said the shelter's closure will become a harsh reality if additional funding cannot be secured. Currently, around 140 people are staying at the warming shelter at 910 Nebraska Street on a nightly basis. The shelter has been operating for about 11 years, primarily on donations. The nonprofit's monthly budget is around $70,000. But it's a public health care situation that we have to deal with, Councilman Matthew O'Kane, who sits on the shelter's governing board, said. If the shelter closes down, there's nowhere for people to use the restroom in the downtown area. So they go on the sidewalk, they go on the street, they go behind a building because there's nowhere for them to relieve themselves. Some residents prefer their tax dollars not to go to the warming shelter, according to Councilwoman Julie Shaner. Shaner said the city's neighborhood services department works diligently to help anyone who's homeless. In 2023, police and fire responded to the warming shelter more than 900 times, she said. I don't know what the dollar amount attached to it is, but I imagine it's substantial, she said, of public safety costs. So I feel like we do support. We're not saying we don't like the warming shelter. We're not saying anything like that. But we have to look at what's fair and where the dollars are spent, who they're donated to. Bob Sheehan, the warming shelter's board president, said the consequence of the shelter not being funded will be increased calls to the city for services. Quote, I don't know if their neighborhood network would be able to deal with the issue that closing the shelter may bring for the city, he said. So we're trying to figure out how to sustain ourselves after this year. But at least for this year, we'd like to make a plea to you. Over the past three years, Councilman Alex Waters said the city has approached the warming shelter with suggestions of grants the nonprofit could apply for. He said to his knowledge, the warming shelter staff didn't take advantage of those funding opportunities. He also said police, fire, and EMS are very, very frustrated with the call volume concerning the warming shelter. Quote, to say they're getting tired of supporting that and they're going there for calls for services and understatement, he said. They're there to make sure that they're being safe and you know that they're cared for just as well. But it is a great expense to taxpayers for that time. Waters asked Sheehan what a $50,000 contribution to from the city would really do when that amount doesn't even cover a month's worth of operating expenses. Sheehan responded that if the city takes the lead with the contribution, then the warming shelter can go to the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors and neighboring city councils for contributions. But we have something to go to other cities with. That you're taking the lead means a lot. That the city is committed to the homeless says a lot, Sheehan said. And so we can go to Sergeant Bluff, South Sioux. We can go to different parts and say, Sioux City's taking the lead. You have to participate. Scott said he wishes the organizations who want money from the city of Sioux City will go to other cities first and get a commitment first. Sheehan responded, but you are the leader. Quote, then responded, no, we're the leaders in everything. And that's not the way it should be around here. Once they hear we give historically, the other communities don't give, Scott said. Mayor Pro Tem Dan Moore agreed that more communities in the area should be contributing. He said he heard a person from Sheldon, Iowa was dropped off at the warming shelter. Quote, Sheldon should be contrib- contributing to the warming shelter. I said for a few years now, we do need to get other communities in Siouxland brought to the table and start paying their contribution, he said. Mayor asked department heads to look for places to make budget cuts. Scott asked all city department heads to see where they could potentially cut 5% from their budgets and then report back. He made the request near the beginning of the study session, which was held at City Hall. Top city staff are recommending a 94 
million or 4.8% increase in the operating budget for the coming fiscal year. When debt service is included, the operating budget totals $249 million, $424,000, an increase of 4.9% from the fiscal year that ends on June 30th. The operating budget is used to fund a variety, a wide variety of services. Public safety, which includes the police and fire departments, accounts for the bulk of the budget's general fund, or 31%. The next largest segments are 18% for utilities and 16% for public works. The proposed property tax levy is around $17.15 per $1,000 of a property's taxable valuation, up about 8.8% from the previous year's levy of around $15.76. Scott called the proposed levy increase bothersome and asked department heads to mull where they could potentially cut 5%. Well, we have not asked that of any department for a long time, and I think it's literally time we really look at it, Scott said. When you look at a training budget of half a million dollars, that's $6,000 almost an employee. I mean, I don't know where we can spend that kind of money. I just think that some of those things, it's time we look at them. I don't know of any organization that spends $6,000 an employee on training. I can't even imagine how that could be. Moore remarked that he liked the idea of a budget review. Well, Shainer noted that not every department may be able to, to achieve a 5% budget cut. Waters said in response to Scott's request, quote, in today's day and age, I don't know how in the world you expect that, but hope springs eternal for the mayor. I think we can look at difficult things. Due to changes in the rollback, residential and city taxes per $100,000 of assessed valuation would decrease by $73 to $712. Commercial and industrial city property taxes per $100,000 of assessed valuation would increase by $125 to $1,544. In 2013, the Iowa legislator made reductions to certain property taxes. They also promised backfill or funding to cities, counties, and schools whose revenues was impacted by the cuts. In fiscal 2021, the legislator decided to phase out the backfill. The backfill will be completely gone in 2030, according to the Iowa League of Cities. Even taking inflation into account, the city finance director, Teresa Fitch, told the council that each resident would still see a decrease of $26 based on the proposed levy. Off-duty deputies could police the parks. During the study session, the council expressed interest in contracting off-duty Woodbury County Sheriff's deputies to police the city's parks rather than hiring a full-time parks enforcement officer. Parks and Recreation Director Matt Salvatore told the council that the best use of funds, in his opinion, is contracting off-duty deputies. The annual cost of off-duty deputies is $50,000 versus $101,645 for a full-time parks enforcement officer. Salvatore said his department would coordinate which parks in the, the deputies would be at and when. It would be after our work in the parks, probably together at the same time. And to be honest, after hours, stuff on the trails are not a big problem. It's mostly at the park, Salvatore said. I think at first, it's just dependent on the needs. So if we know we're having issues at a particular park, we send them there. Shaner said she likes the idea of the deputies because she thinks it'll be safer and they'll be viewed as having a lot more authority than a parks enforcement officer. Quote, they're already trained, they already have equipment. I think starting here is the way to go, Salvatore said. Waters asked Salvatore to look into having off-duty deputies on trails, on utility task vehicles, UTVs, or on bikes. Quote, for me, that'll be the most presence, having someone actually on the trails rather than just in the parking lots, he said. One thing I think about what I appreciate that they do with the trail enforcement in Okoboji is it's also about having water bottles to be able to pass out to people along the trail system 
and then also picking up trash. Usually they have a trash bag in the back of the UTV and they'll try to pick up stuff along the riverfront or along the trail. Council members will vote on budget items during a March 6th wrap-up session and approve the budget during their April 15 weekly meeting. So that's the update with the city budget process. All right, let's now turn to the briefs section of today's paper. That continues on page A2. Headline, Fire Chief Clarifies EMS Staffing Change. The Sioux City Fire Rescue released a statement Friday seeking to clarify that recent city council action to replace 15 current EMS positions with firefighter positions will not decrease the level of service being offered to the community. But each ambulance will remain staffed with at least one paramedic. Sioux City Fire Rescue will continue to provide quality service to our citizens, Fire Chief Tom Everett said in the statement. Currently, Sioux City Fire Rescue operates two emergency response divisions. There are 105 personnel in the fire division and 30 personnel in the EMS division. All personnel, regardless of division, currently hold, at minimum, a State of Iowa Basic Emergency Medical Technician or EMT license. Quote, the purpose of the staffing change is to ensure qualified personnel are available each day to staff our city ambulances. This change reclassifies 15 of our EMS positions to firefighter EMTs, which allows personnel from the fire division to operate on ambulances, ensuring adequate staffing. No EMS personnel will lose employment during the change. The change will occur through attrition, Everett said. Next headline, man hit with 85-year sentence. A 32-year-old Yankton man was sentenced Friday to 85 years in prison after pleading guilty to first-degree manslaughter. Adrian Lund pled guilty in January in connection with the stabbing death of Timber Cornier at a Yankton home on May 22, 2023. She then died at a Sioux Falls hospital the next day, or May 23, 2023. Quote, the sentence hopefully brings some comfort to Timber's family, South Dakota Attorney General Marty Jackley said. Quote, thank you to the law enforcement officers and prosecutors who worked on this case. All right, we will now turn to the Saturday, February 17th edition of the Sioux City Journal, as I think we've exhausted all the local and regional news uh, specific to the Sioux land area. All right, let's now turn to Saturday's paper, where we look to economic development through art. Headline, Hardington Drawing on Creative District. Subheadline, City Hopes Project Attracts New Business and Visitors. From Hardington, Nebraska, economic development directors continually look for every possible way to attract visitors and businesses to their towns and cities. So the Nebraska Creative District program was launched a couple years ago. Miranda Becker and others in Hardington jumped in at the chance to be able to, to be included and gain access to grant money that could help make their home more alluring. But I think people see a small town and think there's nothing to do here, said Becker, Hardington's economic development coordinator. With the promise of grant money that comes with the creative <clears throat> district designation, Becker and other city leaders knew a successful application could fund community improvements aimed at drawing visitors to Hardington and to see what the Cedar County seat has to offer. There's funding available through that for things that wouldn't be high priority for the city, things like murals and art, Becker said. Authorized by the Nebraska legislator in 2020 and run by the Nebraska Arts Council, the Creative District Program, according to its website, aims to promote and support economic development opportunities in, in communities dedicated to growing their arts-related economic sectors. Among its goals are attracting artists, creative enterprises, and businesses, establishing districts as tourist destinations, and promoting communities' cultural and economic heritage. Once accepted into the program, 
A community receives a $10,000 grant and is eligible for up to $250,000 more in grant funds for future years. That kind of money earmarked just for arts-related projects and improvements is a big incentive, Becker said, especially for smaller towns that don't have a lot of extra funds in their budgets after providing basic services such as street maintenance and other infrastructure needs. Becker submitted Hardington's application in March and was notified of the town's acceptance in December. The town's creative district encompasses much of the downtown business district along Broadway Avenue, which already was a nationally registered downtown historic district. It includes historic buildings such as the Hardington Hotel, the Globe Clothing Building, Cedar County Courthouse, and City Library. Becker, who has added the title Creative District Administrator to her duties, said the potential uses for the initial $10,000 grant include a sound system for the downtown area that could play ambient music and be utilized during the annual downtown candlelight Christmas parade. Also under discussion are mural are building murals, decorative benches, and garbage can holders downtown, and finding attractive ways to cover gaps between downtown buildings. Some in the community also would like to reopen an art gallery. Cool. We just really like to grow this so that we have some good community environment, Becker said. Becker foresees using the creative district designation as a marketing tool to pike interest in Hardington and attract visitors. In the meantime, the goal is to start a few projects that will get residents involved and maybe spur more ideas. Quote, it's something you can immediately see. People can be a part of this, Becker said. Once you see things beginning to happen, people will get behind it. So that's the news from Hardington, Nebraska. All right, the next top story from Saturday's paper Headline, Hinton Wrestling Coach Put on Leave. Subheadline, Action Taken in Wake of Alleged Assault Involving Team Members. Two Hinton Community School students have been, quote, reassigned while law enforcement authorities investigate allegations of assaults involving members of the school's boys wrestling team. The school board approved the action in separate three-to-one votes after coming out of closed sessions at a special meeting Thursday night. Superintendent Ken Slater on Friday said he could not elaborate on the disciplinary action or further define what reassigning is because the district is unable to comment on confidential student matters. But we're doing our best to follow the procedures, Slater said. The school board's, the school board's policy manual posted on the district's website defines several student disciplinary measures including detention, suspension, probation, and expulsion. It does not mention reassigning, though the manual says the district's disciplinary measures are not limited to only those listed in the manual. Quote, I can share the district has policies and procedures to address allegations of student misconduct and is committed to providing a safe and positive school environment, Slater said in a statement released earlier this week. Quote, I cannot share any more info, info regarding personnel matters. While Hinden's wrestlers compete in the state individual tournament in Des Moines this weekend, their head coach remains behind. Casey Crawford was placed on paid administrative leave earlier this week. Slater said Crawford is on leave only from his coaching duties and continues to teach math classes at the school. The team's wrestlers were observed at Wells Fargo Arena wearing t-shirts with the words, Free Crawford. Slater said assistant coach Woody Scudos was also placed on paid administrative leave with Crawford, but has been reinstated. Scudos was coaching at this week's state meet where eight Blackhawk wrestlers qualified in Class 1A. Police in Hinton and Coralville, Iowa, are investigating alleged incidents that may have included hazing among wrestlers on the team. Hinton Police Chief James Conway said in an email that he could not comment because of an ongoing investigation involving multiple agencies. At least one of the incidents is alleged to have occurred while the team 
was at the state wrestling dual tournament February 3rd in Coralville. Coralville Police Chief Shane Cron said an unidentified caller reported a possible assault on February 4th. Cron said, The initial report said the incident involved juveniles and occurred sometime from February 2nd to 4th and did not give a location where the incident occurred. The report did not provide any details about the incident. Quote, it's just listed as an assault, Cron said. He said he could not comment further because the case remains under investigation. He said he would not release the juveniles' names. All right, let's now turn to page A2 of the Saturday paper. Headline, Judge Rules for County in Unlawful Arrest Suit from Sioux City. Federal judge has ruled a Dickinson County Sheriff's deputy had reasonable suspicion to detain a Milford, Iowa man who has had filed a lawsuit claiming there was no probable cause for his subsequent arrest, which he said violated his constitutional rights. U.S. District Judge C.J. Williams granted summary judgment to Deputy Sean Syverson, denying Ryan Wolterman's claims of unlawful arrest. Williams' ruling also denied claims of negligent supervision against Sheriff Greg Ballon in Dickinson County. Quote, because the court finds that the defendant Silverson had reasonable suspicion to effect a temporary investigative detention, Walterman has failed to establish a genuine issue of material fact that the deputy violated plaintiff's constitutional rights, Williams said in his February 7th ruling. Walterman has 30 days from the filing date to appeal the ruling. He said Silverson Ballone in the county in October 2022, he sued him in U.S. District Court in Sioux City, saying Syverson violated his freedom from unlawful arrest when he was detained and cited for a public intoxication, a charge that was later dismissed. He's seeking a judgment awarding him punitive damages and damages for pain and suffering and deprivation of his constitutional rights. Court documents show that Syverson had responded to a call about a fight at an Arnold's Park bar in the early morning hours of November 8, 2020, and stopped and questioned Walterman, who was walking away from the bar. Seconds later, Milford police officer Jesse Haas arrived. Walterman told them he had left the bar and was not involved in the fight, but had witnessed it. After he was told he matched the description of a man suspected of being in the fight, Walterman became generally uncooperative and initially declined to provide his identification. Haas, who was not named in the suit, later handcuffed Walterman with Syverson's assistance. Syverson then spoke with another fight suspect and was told by a witness that Walterman was not involved. As a witness walked away, Syverson told the other suspect that Walterman was, quote, going for public intoxication anyways because he was being stupid. Walterman ultimately pleaded not guilty of public intoxication and the charge was dismissed eight months later in a plea agreement in which he agreed to pay $60 in court costs in exchange for the dismissal. All right, continuing our local stories, we turn to page A3 of Saturday's paper where we look to the Democrats' uh, presidential caucuses, or, well, I guess it's, it's much different form this year. Headline, time's almost out for Dems to request caucus cards. Head, subheadline, deadline to request a presidential preference card is Monday. More than 17,500 Iowa Democrats had requested mail-in caucus cards by Friday morning to participate in the party's 2024 presidential nominating contest. In 2012, the last time a Democratic incumbent was on the ballot when then-President Barack Obama ran for re-election, about 15,000 Democrats voted at their caucus sites, the Iowa Democratic Party said in a news release. The number, though, is a fraction less than 3% of the nearly 658,000 registered Democratic voters in the state. In comparison to comparison, more than 110,000 Iowa Republicans 
cast votes on January 15th in the first in the nation 2024 Iowa Republican presidential precinct caucuses, or 15% of the more than 750,000 registered Republican voters in the state. Of the 17,510 requests for mail-in Democratic preference cards, more than 16,000 have been mailed to households and more than 6,000 cards have been returned according to the Iowa Democratic Party. This is the final weekend for Iowa Democrats to request their 2024 presidential preference cards. The deadline to submit a request for a presidential preference card is 11.59 p.m. on Monday. Democrats can request a card th- through uh, iowademocrats.org right slash caucus. Iowa, De- Iowa Democrats have until March 5th to return their presidential preference card. It must be postmarked by then to be accepted. Party officials strongly encourage cards to be returned through the mail and not dropped off at the Iowa Democratic Party headquarters or local county party offices. New batches of preference cards are mailed out every Monday and arrive within 24 hours. The Iowa Democratic Party has a team of staff providing assistance and answering questions about the new mail-in process. Those with last-minute questions can call 515-216-3893. A party spokesperson said return preference cards are stored in a secure location and will begin will the tabulation begin tabulating around March 1st. Results will be announced March 5th, Super Tuesday, when more than a half dozen states, other states will hold presidential primaries. Details when results will be made available will be announced later, party officials said. The party's new cards will include the names of incumbent President Joe Biden and two long-shot challengers, U.S. US Representative Dean Phillips of Minnesota and author Marion Williamson, who last week suspended her campaign, along with an option to remain uncommitted. Quote, while it's clear that President Biden will be our nominee, it's important that Iowa Democrats participate in our mail-in caucus so that we can set ourselves up for success in 2028 and beyond, Iowa Democratic Party Chair Rita Hart said in a statement. National Democrats last year reshaped their presidential nominating calendar, booting Iowa from being the first in the nation and removing Iowa from the group of early states altogether. The decision followed a chaotic 2020 caucus night for Iowa Democrats when a smartphone app meant to make reporting results easier failed. As a result, the official Democratic caucus results were not reported for several weeks. State party leaders have been critical of the Democratic National Committee's involvement in delaying development of the app and then demanding additional technology that failed on caucus night. The debacle compounded existing concerns about Iowa's lack of racial diversity and barriers to participation. The Iowa Democratic put forward the mail-in proposal to make the caucuses more accessible, which was one of the main criticisms. Following the 2020 presidential election, many national party leaders expressed a preference for primary elections over party-run caucuses. Republicans have roundly criticized the decision, saying the Democrats have turned their back on Iowa and rural America. National Democratic Party leaders have said they would revisit the presidential nominating calendar for 2028. All right, let's keep working our local stories. Page A4, headline, Border Moves Board Member Reports from Meeting Agenda. The Sioux City School Board has removed from its regular agenda a time for individual board members to speak out on non-agenda issues. Traditionally, the school board has had a portion of their regularly scheduled meeting for what's been known as board member reports. In addition to speaking items not in that week's agenda, board members have also used the time to provide updates on committee meetings. During Monday's regular meeting, board president Jan George said it was suggested that that had to be removed from the agenda. George said lately that board members have not 
had anything to report, and if they were giving a report, it was often saying they attended the required committee meetings. Quote, this policy allows us to remove this from the agenda. The leadership team discussed this, and the consensus was to remove it, George told the journal. This also allows us to streamline the board meetings in the future and to stay focused on the business at hand. If a board member wishes to have something mentioned, he or she can send that to the superintendent, who included it in his report. The topic has been placed on the agenda board for policy committee for discussion. The meeting takes place at 3.30 p.m. on Tuesday. Previously, it was proposed that board members submit written board member reports to be included in the board packet. The suggestion was discussed in the board policy committee in September. Board member Bob Mitchelson suggested that board member reports be written ahead of time. Former board member Monique Scarlett argued board member reports are for accountability and used as a time to bring new ideas forward. Former board member Bernie Scalero shared she used the board meeting member reports for updates on legislative issues as well as time to note successes in upcoming events. In March 2023, board members used board member reports as an opportunity to speak in opposition of anti-LGBTQ bills circulating in the Iowa legislature. Quote, it was suggested to have a board member workshop with the incoming new school board members, according to meeting minutes. Quote, it was board consensus, it was broad, broad consensus for the board member report to remain as is on the regular school board agenda. In recent years, a number of topics have been brought forward during board member reports, and this section of the agenda has regularly taken more than half an hour, with each member bringing different comments forward. Often, board members will share upcoming events in the community and school districts, speak on topics that are occurring in the state national level, announce their resignations, recognize teacher concerns, etc. Throughout early 2023, board members shared information regarding the search for a new superintendent and their thoughts on the process. In August, board member Dan Greenwell used board member reports to share concerns about a rumor that the district administration reported a parent to the FBI for domestic terrorism after he protested at a board meeting in 2020. He later apologized for the accusation after the FBI confirmed that no such report took place. In May 2022, Scarlett shared concerns regarding the transparency of an interim superintendent selection. At the time, an argument broke out between Scarlett and Greenwell regarding the situation. At the same time, the selection of Angela Bemis for associate superintendent was announced during board member reports. In 2021, board members shared opinions regarding mask mandate for the COVID-19 pandemic during that portion of the meetings. In the past few years, during the last meetings for outgoing board members, they have given goodbye statements during board member reports. Board members have also announced a resignation from the board during that portion of the meeting. All right, let's now turn to Cone Park. Headline, wasn't, quote, wasn't the winter we hoped for, Cone Park season ends early, comma, expenses within operating budget. Despite a short season, Sioux City Recreation Superintendent John Burns said Cone Park is within its operating budget. Cone Park announced Thursday it will close for the remainder of the 2024 winter season due to unseasonably warm weather. But it wasn't the winter we wanted. We do everything we can to make it available to the public, Burns told the journal. It was a rough year, but we're still excited that we were shown such support from the people when we were open. The park has historically been open for around 60 to 70 days in the winter, Burns said. In the last three years, 63 was the lowest. This year, he estimates the park was open for around 15 days. Despite the fewer days, he said the turnout when they were open was high, with many days being close to sold out and requests for private events and fundraisers being high. But I think we're going to occasionally get years like 
there where the weather's not going to cooperate and we're not going to have as great of a performance. This year, the weather forced the city to temporarily close the Tubing Hill on February 8th. City staff had plans to make more snow and reopen the park this weekend after roughly a week-long closure. Burns said city staff and the park's operations crew were at the park almost daily over the last few weeks looking at snow on the ground, what they could make before opening, and how long the snow will stay on the ground. Quote, day-to-day would change. At first, we really thought we were able to be able to push through, and the two-week forecast looked good. And then, as the two-week forecast starts becoming a one-week, temperatures kept rising. Thursday night, they, they could have made snow, and it would have stuck, he said, but in a few days, it's anticipated to be sunny and in the upper 40s and 50s throughout the next week. The experience of customers is also a factor in the decision process. Bird said he doesn't want people to pay for only two lanes to be open and have to walk through mud to tub. Cone Park's goal is to financially break even with the possibility of making extra funds that return to the city's general budget, Burns said. Last year, the park had recorded record attendance at 29,059 visitors, as well as record revenue of $346,000. Christmas break generally represents a good portion of the park's seasonal revenue. From December 1st, 2022 through January 2nd, 2023, the park brought in $72,000, which is roughly 21% of its total revenue for the 2022-2023 season. Since opening in 2017, total revenue over the month-long period was between $29,000 and $93,000. Emissions fees for the three-hour tubing sessions increased this season for the first time in Cone Park's history after the City Council approved a $3 increase per session. Operating expenses at the park have increased as infrastructure at the park, which opened in 2017. Burns said the department will have to wait and see where the dust settles, but they're anticipating it will be a tougher year financially than previous years. Well, by cutting the season very short, we're still within our operating budget as far as staffing, supplies, and all that stuff, so we're not actually planning on exceeding that, Burns said. We're not going to be asking for a bunch of money because our operating expenses were significantly high. That just isn't the case. All right, next story. MRHD awards $300,000 to Sioux City Colleges. Four Sioux City Colleges are receiving $75,000 each for scholarship grants. Missouri River Historical Development announced Thursday that it awarded a total of $300,000 for funding scholarship grants to Briarcliff University, Morningside University, St. Luke's College, and Western Iowa Tech Community College during a ceremony at the Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center in Sioux City. According to MRHD, the grants are meant to provide funding for scholarships of up to $5,000 to support students who have the greatest financial need. Each college receives $75,000 to administer the grants during the 2024-2025 academic year. To be eligible, the students need to have graduated from a public or private high school in Woodbury County. MRHD also said it requests students consider, colleges, consider students with GPAs of 3.0 or lower. Well, we're pleased to be able to provide... Continuing support for deserving students attending the four colleges located in Woodbury County with these scholarship grants. President of the MRHD Board of Directors, Sarah Kleber, said, We know these scholarships have the power to remove financial barriers for students to pursue degrees and training that can make a significant impact on the lives of those who receive them. Higher education is a powerful tool to transform individuals and families, which aligns perfectly with our mission of improving the quality of life for all Woodbury County residents. Since 1989, MRHD said it's awarded over $2.6 million in scholarship grants for area students and invested more than $52 million into the local community through various grants. All right, next headline, schools try to get more students therapy. 
Derry Oliver was in fifth grade when she first talked to her mom about seeing a therapist. She was living in Georgia with her uncle and grandparents while her mom was in New York scoping out jobs and apartments ahead of moving the family. It was a rough year apart. Oliver, now 17, was feeling depressed. A school staffer raised the idea of a therapist. Oliver's mom, also named Derry Oliver, questioned the school's assessment didn't give consent for therapy. You're so young, the mom recalled thinking, there's nothing wrong with you, these are growing pains. The issue boiled over again during the COVID-19 pandemic when the younger Oliver, struggling with the isolation of remote learning, reached out to her Brooklyn high school for help. School-based mental health professionals like social workers can provide some counseling without parent permission. In New York, referring a student to more intensive therapy almost always requires a parent's agreement. In Oliver's case, that led to more conflict. It was very emotional for both of us because I understood her frustrations and fears, the younger Oliver said. But at the same time, it's sometimes best for your child to be able to access this rather than hold it away from them. As schools across the country responded to a youth mental health crisis accelerated by the pandemic, many are confronting the thorny legal, ethical, and practical challenges of getting parents on board with treatment. The issue became politicized, with some states looking to streamline access as conservative politicians elsewhere propose further restrictions, accusing schools of trying to indoctrinate students and cut out parents. Differing perspectives on mental health aren't new for parents and kids, but more conflicts are emerging as young people get more comfortable talking openly about mental health and treatment becomes more readily accessible. Schools invested pandemic relief money in hiring more mental health specialists, as well as telehealth and online counseling to reach as many students as possible. Quote, it's this disconnect, said Chelsea Trout, a social worker at a charter school in Brooklyn. The kids are all on TikTok on the internet and understand therapy speak and that this is something that could be helpful for their mental health and are interested in, but don't have the explicit buy-in from their parents. Research suggests that having to obtain parental permission can be a significant barrier to teens accessing treatment. According to access to therapy can be critical, particularly for LGBTQ plus youth who are significantly more likely than the peers to attempt suicide as parents may not know about or approve their sexual orientation or gender identities. Jessica Chalk Goldman, a social worker at Bard Early College and High School in Manhattan, said that she's seen many cases where mental health issues turn severe in part because teens can get earlier access to therapy. Oh, a lot of kids would be hospitalized because of suicidal ideation or intent because the preventative work didn't come into fruition, she said. The question of when young people can consent to mental health treatment is getting increasing attention from policymakers. States, including California and Colorado, recently lowered the age of consent for treatment to 12. However, in some states like North Carolina, the issue has been swept up into larger political debates about parents' input on curriculum and the rights of transgender students. There's also a huge obstacle outside the law. Therapy is rarely free and paying for it or submitting insurance claims often requires parental support. Teens in New York can consent to therapy starting at age 16, and a provision allows doctors to authorize treatment for younger children if they deem it in their best interest. But the consent laws only apply in outpatient settings licensed by the state, and they don't extend to the prescription of medications. All right, let's now turn to page A6 for a more local news recap. The Milken Educator Award. Headline, Orange City Educator Honored. Subheadline, MOC Floyd Valley Grant Hegstead awarded $25,000. Grant Hegstead from MOC Floyd Valley was awarded a $25,000 Milken Educator Award Thursday afternoon. Hegstead is the sole Iowa recipient of the Milken Educator Award this year. A surprise assembly was held at MOC Floyd Valley High School to announce the award. Hegstead serves as MOC Floyd Valley's high school's assistant principal, extended career experiences coordinator, 
Center for Advanced Professional Studies instructor and head football coach. Quote, I'm honored and humbled to say the least, Hegstead said. I'm here today because I had incredible teachers growing up. As an educator now, to you as my colleagues and our team here, I'm so grateful for the chance to come work with you every day. Hegstead has been in education for 14 years, all at MOC Floyd Valley. He started in special education before moving on to instructing coaching roles. In the last two years, he has been serving as the high school assistant principal along with his other roles. Hexa said he feels his current positions have been tailored to who he is as a person and where his passions lie. Hexted follows MLC Floyd Valley Superintendent Russ Adams, who received his award as principal at MLC Floyd Valley High School in 2003. Quote, we are extremely fortunate to have Grant serving and leading at MLC Floyd Valley. His vision for teaching and learning and his commitment to helping students grow through authentic experiences is unparalleled, Adams said. He is a true difference maker and an absolute blessing to everyone fortunate enough to know him. Iowa Department of Education Director Mackenzie Snow spoke to the, at the assembly, and the award was presented by Milken Education Awards Senior Vice President Jane Foley. Greg Grant Hegstad is a natural-born leader, learner, and educator, said Foley, who also in 1994, who was also a 1994 Milken educator from Indiana. Quote, providing all the students with invaluable hands-on opportunities to pursue their goals and dreams has been a game changer. The local partnerships he has built with families, colleagues, and community members will continue to elevate educational opportunities for his students. Hegstead said as he was standing in the gym during the assembly and it was announced an award would be given out, he was thinking of which teacher it could be. Quote, you could have picked a lot of teachers sitting in our bleachers today, our administrative team from our district. We've got phenomenal people, he said. Hegstead got his bachelor's degree from Northwestern College in 2010 and his master's in 2014 from the University of Sioux Falls. The Milken Educator Award was created in 1987 by Lowell Milken as a way to publicly recognize teachers and to inspire teachers, students, and communities to celebrate, elevate, and activate the American K-12 teaching profession. The Milken Family Foundation does not take applications for the award. They seek out individuals in early to mid-career based on their achievements. The award is being presented to 75 teachers across the nation. Along with the cash prize, the educators are given an all-expenses-paid trip to a Milken Awards Forum in Los Angeles to network with other recipients. They also join networks of other educators who have also received the award to take part in a mentorship program. Hegstead said he was not sure how he would spend the award. There have been 47 Iowa educators to receive the award since Iowa joined the program in 1993. All right, let's keep the stories going. On page A6, Auditor Sands Clashes with GOP Lawmakers from Des Moines. The ability of the state's taxpayer watchdog to access information from other state agencies during an audit and the limits of that watchdog's authority are being tested as Dem Democratic Iowa Auditor Rob Sands tussles over state audits with Republican lawmakers and a state board whose members were appointed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. The day after Republican state lawmakers advanced new legislation that would allow the government agencies to bypass the state auditor and have their annual audits instead conducted by a private accountant, Sand on Thursday highlighted the Iowa Board of Parole's recent rejection of his office's request for some information during an audit, citing a new law approved last year. Sand said the rejection by the Iowa Board of Parole is the first example of a government body declining to fully cooperate with an audit <clears throat> by citing the 2023 law which placed guardrails on the kind of information that the state auditor can seek during investigation. When it was passed last year and again during a news conference on Thursday, San called it, quote, the most pro-corruption bill in Iowa history. 
Quote, today we're witnessing the first report telling the public that the truth remains hidden from them as a result of that law, Sands said Thursday during a news conference. Government corruption and secrecy are growing in the state of Iowa. The parole board said it refused Sands' request because it fell outside the scope of the audit and that Sands' office needed to file a separate request, known as an engagement letter, for the information that he sought. Quote, audit engagement letters set out the rights and responsibilities of the parties to the audit for the benefit of both the auditor and the agency, as noted in the audit report, the Board of Parole requests an engagement letter as required in Iowa law. The auditor refused to provide one, said a statement sent by a spokeswoman for the Board of Parole. The audit report from Sands' office noted that the Parole Board failed to have one regular member in attendance for some hearing panels that alternate board members, which was a violation of state law. In the audit report, the Parole Board said that it learned of the improper action and reviewed the panels to bring them into compliance. When Sands' office requested documents to confirm those actions, the Board of Parole declined to respond, saying the information was related to ongoing litigation and was not related to the audit. Sands said the report started from a whistleblower's tip. Cole, can we tell you the Board will fix this problem on their own? We can't. Can we tell you that they fixed the problem at all? We can't, Sands said during his news conference. Quote, no one in the state knows other than a bunch of government insiders because of the bill that this building passed and the governor signed last year. The 2023 law was introduced by Iowa Representative Michael Busselot, a Republican from Ankeny. Earlier this week, Busselot introduced another bill that would affect the auditor's office. His 2024 proposal would, instead of having their annual audit conducted by the Iowa auditor's office, allow government agencies and officials to hire a private accountant to conduct an audit. Critics of the proposal, including Sands, have said Senate File 2311 opens the door to political corruption by allowing government officials to bypass the state auditor for annual audits. Boussalat noted the hiring of a private accountant to conduct required annual audit is already allowed for and widely employed by local governments and school districts. Quote, only in politics could hiring a nonpartisan, independent, licensed, certified public accountant be labeled as political, Boussalat said. It buggles the mind to that it works so far so well and allowed for accountability and effectiveness at the local government level. Sand and Boussalat disagree over whether the state auditor would retain the authority to investigate private audit reports under the proposed bill. Boussalat insists that his proposal does nothing to restrict the auditor's ability to conduct an audit if there appear to be weaknesses in an audit conducted by a private accountant. Sand insists that his office would not have the authority under Boussalat's bill. The bill was passed out of committee last week, surviving the legislator's funnel deadline. It is now eligible for flood debate in the Senate. All right, let's turn to the business section or page A7 of today or yesterday's paper. Headline, landowners settle lawsuit over derailment. So by then, BNSF derailment in 2018 spilled 160,000 gallons of oil. <clears throat> Owners of land at the site of a 2018 train derailment and oil spill near Dune, Iowa, have settled a lawsuit against the railroad company for the ongoing cleanup and reduced property values they say were caused by oil and contaminants that remain in the soil. Philip, Christy, John, and Helen Cunia, all of Rock Valley, Iowa, and all trustees of Revocable Living Trust, sued BNSF Rail Railways in June for negligence and sought punitive damages against the Fort Worth, Texas company. The lawsuit was initially filed in Lyon County District Court, and it was later removed to federal court in Sioux City. The parties filed a joint notice of settlement in January and on Tuesday filed a stipulation for dismissal, closing the case. Terms of the settlement are confidential, said Lamar's Iowa attorney Gene Collins, one of Kusma's lawyers. The BNSF train derailed in June, 2020, June 22, 22, 2018 after entering an area where flooding had washed out the track. 
The derailment resulted in the spill of approximately 160,000 gallons of oil from 10 tank cars. The Koimas had alleged BNSF knew of the flooding, but failed to inspect, maintain, and repairs track through the area, which had flooded after 5 to 7 inches of rain had fallen in the previous two days. Much of the oil was contained between the tracks and the two roads, but flooded waters washed through the oil and into the Rock River, Little Rock River, and Burr Oak Creek. State and federal officials built a berm around the derailed cars to keep leaking oil from entering into the floodplain, and contaminated topsoil was also replaced. The Koimas, who own approximately 464 acres of land at and around the derailment site, said the property has suffered permanent damages and costs to counter the damage are ongoing. They said the land's value was reduced as the result of the oil spill. Federal investigators later determined that the 110-unit train, which was hauling nearly 2.5 million gallons of crude oil from a terminal in Alberta, Canada, to Houston, was traveling 48 miles per hour, one mile below the maximum authorized speed on that section of track, when the emergency brakes were applied, causing the derailment. In December 2021, BNSF agreed to pay a settlement of more than $1.5 million to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency for Clean Water Act violations resulting from the derailment. All right, friends, we have just a short time together, so let's go to page A8 of Saturday's paper for the week in Iowa, do some quick, shorter stories. All right, key bills pass legislative funnel deadline. Iowa lawmakers worked sometimes late into the evening this week to move legislation ahead of the first legislative funnel deadline. Friday marked the last day for most bills to pass out of committees to remain eligible for consideration for the rest of the session. Majority Republicans advanced bills regulating the state's area education agencies, changing election procedures, addressing traffic safety, and cracking down on unlawful immigration. Democrats roundly criticized the Republicans' parties this session, calling their agenda an attack on Iowans and saying they are not addressing real needs. All right, let's just do a quick recap of the weather for the next five days, and then we will say goodbye for this weekend. Siouxland's five-day forecast. Sunny, breezy, not as cold again today. Winds uh, 10 to 20 miles per hour and a high of just 39. Tonight will be low of 21, winds 8 to 16 miles per hour. Sunday, mostly sunny and milder. High of 47, low of 25, winds northwest 6 to 12 miles per hour. Monday, mild with partial sunshine, high of 47, low of 23, and Tuesday, mostly sunny and milder, high of 57, low of 33, and Wednesday, mostly sunny and mild, high of 57, low of 30. So at least we got no more snow, but some sun to melt it off, and, well, reasonably warm weather for February. All right, friends, that's it for Iris for Sunday, February 18th, and Saturday, February 17th, 2024. Your reader has been Trevor. And I've been pleased to bring you the Sioux City Journal for today. Hope you all have a wonderful day. Take care. Bye-bye.